Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I have made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. So 3D printing has been an up-and-coming sector for decades now, with many real-world and exciting applications. 3D printing can be used in the automotive industry, aeronautics, architecture, culinary, residential building, boats, jewelry, and much, much more with a broad spectrum of materials to work with. This technology can take advantage of metals, plastic polymers, food, concrete, regolith, and much more. In this episode, my guest stars and I will be giving you an introduction into how 3D printing works, its applications with some really interesting examples, and some of the materials that are heavily used to benefit society. So speaking of my guest stars, please first meet Alexa Voss. Alexa has a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Gyur in Hungary. She now holds a position as a production planner and process engineer with Hungary's Audi Engine Factory. This exposes Alexa to Audi's additive manufacturing practices that are sprinkled throughout the episode. But not only does she hold this position with Audi, Alexa is the founder of Low Cost Robotics, which focuses on 3D printing prosthetics for children. Our other guest is Noah Shin. Noah graduated from Slippery Rock University with a bachelor's in physics, as well as a bachelor's in engineering from West Virginia University. Currently, Noah is working in a pump repair facility where he reverse engineers parts, which sometimes requires 3D scanning technology and also 3D printing knowledge. Now, Noah and I go way back at Slippery Rock because he was in charge of our department's 3D printing lab before I took it over. Him and I were both introduced to the concepts of 3D printing at the same place, which is really interesting. Okay, now that you've been introduced to the topic of this show and our fantastic guest stars, we're going to run into our first commercial. But stay with us because when we come back, Alexa, Noah, and I will be giving an introduction into 3D printing and more. Stay tuned. Noah Shin, Alexa Voss, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. Now, I know Noah and I have had some history, but Alexa, it is great to have you on. For anyone who is unfamiliar, Alexa is pretty famous from where she's from. Well, when was it? 2020 when you gave that TED Talk speech? Would you first mind telling us a little bit about that? (laughs) Yes, thanks. Yes, back in 2020, I gave a TEDx talk at uh, TEDx Liberty Bridge Women. And I was talking about the importance of women in STEM and uh, why we need more female engineers, female data scientists, or yeah, we just need more women in STEM. So yeah, that was about this topic. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful message. And we did something quite similar a few months ago featuring women in STEM. That was before we turned into everything STEAM. Uh, Obviously, arts are are just as important because of communication. Also, uh, I'm sorry, you'll have to let me know when that gets dubbed in English. I know you were telling me that it hasn't been dubbed yet. So when it does, let me know and I'll make sure to put it on the website so people can watch it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're talking about 3D printing. And before we dive into an introduction, I'm kind of curious, what got you two interested in 3D printing in the first place? So Noah, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I was in college at Slippery Rock, where I eventually met you, one of my friends in the physics department showed me a 3D printer they had gotten. And, you know, it was a, it was a really old one. It was like a Robo 3D, and I didn't really understand it much, but I was pretty instantly hooked, right? And so I helped them develop a 3D printing lab where they eventually got 
whole bunch of printers. I think we had eight by the time I left. And just from experience working on them, that's kind of how I got into it. Actually, I took it over right after you left. You handed it off to me and it just continued to build. We got CNC printers, laser engravers. Before I left, we had a, a laser scanner that I unfortunately didn't get a chance to tinker with. But yeah, I mean, Alexa, what got you started? I know you run your own business, right? <laughs> yes. I don't know when, but I am a, a student ambassador of the Association of Hungarian Women in Science. And they organized uh, every year a summer camp for girls. And yeah, I saw there a 3D printer. And then later I decided to to be a student researcher at Peter Pazmány Catholic University uh, in Budapest. And yeah, actually I got into 3D printing at that time when I was a student researcher because, uh, you know, I built a 3D printed robotic arm. So yeah. That's awesome. I think my favorite builds that you would make are something that's dynamic. I mean, static models are cool, but dynamic models for from 3D printing is, is really fascinating because it's always a head scratcher. But I got into it because of two reasons. One, I really love the material science behind it. And whenever I was taking courses like mechanics and materials, it was such a help to see those concepts outside of the classroom, something that I could do with my own hands. And it made me a better engineer in that sense. And then secondly, it was an opportunity to research things and be creative at the same time. So you're building, not only do you have science, you have material science, you have engineering, uh, you have technology, and then you have arts. And then, of course, you know, sprinkled in there a little bit of mathematics if uh, you're trying to build something from scratch. But I'm thinking, Alexa, maybe we should, you know, explain what 3D printing is. Do you have any quick thoughts on that? Yes, I think 3D printing is... Uh, is more complicated than to explain it briefly, but I guess I would say 3D printing is creating something from nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like taking something from a 3D model that you design, you know, you have a, you have a digital source, right? You have a, an outline of what you want to make. And then what a computer does is it turns it into a software, turns it into a, a code and then that code is read by the printer in real time and prints that object out that you created on the computer layer by layer. And I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, Noah, before I continue on there. No, I mean, I, I agree. You know, it's, it's quite magical. I've been into 3D modeling for a long time uh, before 3D printers were popular as a hobbyist thing. And to be able to just make a model and then actually have it in your hands within some number of hours is really amazing. Yeah, it really is. There's like three stages to it um, without any maintenance involved. There's the computer aspect. There's the software aspect. Like you're making it on a computer and then you're breaking it down into a code and then you're printing it out physically. It's simplistic in that form, but it's also quite complicated. But we'll get into that as we move on for the episode. But so I have a couple notes here that it's an additive manufacturing approach. It's a way in which like a, a company or an independent can make a prototype of a design that can be mass produced potentially. And secondly, it's a way in which you can make niche products for a specific application. And we'll talk about those applications down the line. And of course, it can also be you know, used privately or, or creatively. There's some different forms that you can be on. Uh, I know one that I'm on is R3D printing on. It's a subreddit within Reddit and it's a, it's a great community. And if anybody didn't know this, 
3D printing has been around for quite some time now. Do you know when it was kind of conceptualized, either of you? In the 70s, maybe? I remember that. I think it was 70s or 80s with SLA being one of the first ones. Yeah, yeah. It was the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it was a guy in Japan named uh, Hideo Kodama. And he was looking to develop a more rapid prototyping system. And, well, he failed to patent his idea, but it was essentially what you would first picture where you would hear the word 3D printing. It was a method with, you know, cross-sectional slices of layers. They would form one on top of another to make a three-dimensional object. And doing it in rapid time compared to any other methods at the moment. And it's it's really interesting because I thought that extrusion was the first type of 3D printing. And, and like you said, no, it's not. It was uh, SLA or stereolithography. And it was actually stereolithography for, for resin laser printing. But we'll get to that in a little bit as well. I just wanted to add, the only reason I knew that, and if you're into 3D printing, I feel like everyone's heard this fun fact, but uh, the movie Small Soldiers from 1998, in the intro of that movie, there's these toy figurines being SLA printed. No way. And it looks super futuristic. You know, they they add like green laser lines and stuff. But nowadays you can just do that. Yeah. It's real now. And it's really cool. It's amazing how science fiction kind of portrays the future. I love it. They they like conceptualize the ideas and the people go go after it and make it a reality. I love that. But you know, anyways, like fast forwarding like 40 years from Kodama. You can actually buy a desktop extrusion printer now for like $150, $200. Whereas back in the 80s and 90s, it was all research and industrial based. You couldn't get your hands on it unless you were like certified or qualified to run the printers. And the cost to do so is just outrageous compared to what you have today. I mean, good old supply and demand there. But obviously, if, if you know a lick of, of economics and understand how the free market works, it's inevitable to you know have such low prices today, at least for deposition printers or extrusion printers. And because all these companies want a piece of the pie and create some awesome prototypers. And with that growth in technology came a growth in ideas of what could be 3D printed. So Noah, what, what kinds of materials does the industry take advantage of? So if you're talking about like... Uh, FDM printing or FFF printing, talking about thermoplastics. Uh, it's been really common to use PLA for a while. ABS used to be more common. We've kind of gotten away from that. Um, PETG or different PET variants, I think are becoming really popular. That's mainly what I print in now. I find that it's relatively easy to print like PLA, but it's a bit stronger. Mm -hmm. That's plastics. But then there's also like, you know, they also print obviously like on a broader sense, they print plastics metals or there's even a wood type that they make now it's like a mix of wood fiber or cork or bamboo and it's typically like a composite with some form of plastic which is pretty cool and even sand yeah we have a sand printer at one of our shops that are on my company so we're actually making mold for castings and uh it basically it puts down a layer of sand and then it sprays it with a bonding agent so you said you make like castings for that, right? Yeah. So I work with pumps. So something like a big impeller or uh, just a complicated oh. pump casing. I would make the 3D model of it like the positive image, send it off to someone else. They turn it into a negative and they add like the sprues and all the technical casting things that I'm not familiar with. And then they 3D print a negative out of sand and then they pour the molten metal in 
and you just chip away the sand when you're done and there's your part. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's definitely a really good approach to, like I said, like we talked about before, the niche products in a market. Yeah, something like a one-off. Yeah, where you typically can't mass produce it. It's it's fantastic to have some form of 3D printing to help you out there. And it saves a heck of a lot of money in terms of machining. And time. <laughs> and time. That's been a big thing. I mean, I know a lot of people think of 3D printing as kind of slow, relatively speaking, because it goes for just hours or days. But compared to the old processes, it's a lot faster. Oh, absolutely. And I have a really good example of that when we talk about metals here soon. So there are three main types of 3D printing. There are extrusion printers, or what we call deposition printers. There's resin printers, and then there are powder-based printers. Alexa, would you like to talk about extrusion printing first? That's probably more of the hot-button topic that a lot of people, I would say, would resonate with this podcast. Yes, yes. Actually, this uh, FDM technology, uh, fused deposition modeling, is the most popular. Everyone I, I knew... Uh, has an FDM printer. <laughs> I also have an FDM printer, and yeah, I think it's uh, it's cheaper than an SLA printer, and maybe it's just my opinion. It's easier to use. So I mean, you don't have to wear, for example, safety gloves or something else. Uh, you just have to print. Fused uh, deposition modeling uses the melt plastic. And it is used to deposit filaments of these uh, thermal plastics not mentioned before. And yeah, actually, these printers work as CNC machines. You, you generate the, the G-code file and then add it to your printer. And uh, it uh, makes these layers. And it builds your model uh, from these layers. You made before in the slicer program so yeah that's how it works yeah yeah it's um really just building something from the ground up yes yes exactly (laughs) it builds up from what we call a bed plate but one thing i want to reiterate is that we're mending these thermoplastics to come out of a nozzle where it prints in a pattern from the g-code and what it does is it by layer, the layers will fuse together. And as the code keeps running and as the the printer keeps running, it just builds uh, in height as you go up. So it's pretty cool. It's it's three-dimensional in that, in that aspect. It can run in X, Y, and then builds up in Z over time. There's a couple things that are very important in terms of doing fusion deposition modeling, or if you want to throw slang terminology, just extrusion printing. It's where, you know, you're getting the plastic pushed out of a nozzle is that you have to really worry about temperature. And there's three types of temperature that you need to be concerned about. It's the temperature that is in your nozzle that is mending the plastic that's being pushed through the nozzle. And then there's the bed plate temperature, which kind of keeps the bottom layer in a certain state of temperature that keeps an appropriate adhesion between the bottom layer and the bed plate. So it doesn't, you know, snap off or, or move whenever you're trying to do the print. And then the third one is ambient temperature because ambient temperature is kind of a pain. And I'm sure both of my guests can quite understand that is it has a heavy influence on the cooling rate of your object. 
and both in terms of being too hot and too cold can be can be quite detrimental to the printing process. So have either of you ever had any experience to liquid resin printers by any chance? I have not actually used one, but I sure as heck look them up a lot. <laughs> they are really cool, aren't they? Yeah, I've been trying to convince myself to buy one as the prices get lower and lower. But uh, like Alexis said earlier, you know, you have to have the gloves. It has to be, I have to have like a fume hood for it. And I just can't, I can't see myself using it often enough to pull the trigger to buy it. <laughs> I can relate to that. I can relate to that. <laughs> but I also want to convince myself because with a SLA printer, you can print pretty cool things in a pretty cool quality. Like you can print something. Uh, uh, no, you mentioned these uh, GI Joe figures. Yeah, you can uh, print these figures out uh, with an FDM printer, just in the same quality as with an SLA printer. So yeah. Yeah, there's a couple different types of of liquid resin printers. There's the most dominant is the uh, the SLA, uh, the stereolithography which is kind of like a, it's really just a laser pointer, like a fine tip pencil that, that runs across the liquid plastic or the liquid polymer. And it layer by layer, the laser or the, it could be an ultraviolet laser or a blue visible light LED and it shines onto the liquid and it excites these molecules of the resin into a crystalline structure through you know, adding energy to the system. And as this happens, the layers harden to the bed plate. And then layer by layer, the bed plate moves up to create this final print. And the cool thing about that is the difference between these liquid resin printers and the deposition printers is that the bed plate for the deposition printer doesn't move vertically. It only stays fixed and moves in the uh, lateral and longitudinal directions. Now, with the resin printers, it moves vertical away from the bath. And it's, it's just a different approach. And it's really, really fascinating. Another thing that wasn't mentioned, but is really cool, is that these printers obviously comes with the cost is that it's five times faster than your typical deposition printers. And it's a lot more precise. I think you mentioned that, Alexa, right? It's much more precise. Yeah, but I don't think it's worth that much effort you have to put in. Yeah, I mean, it really just depends on your application. You know, if you're printing um, really small prints, then maybe. But if you're printing macroscopic prints, then not so much. It's either, I can't remember if it's the SLA or if it's the, the digital light processing, the DLP. They're down to like the precision of about a, like 50 microns or plus or minus like 15%. Oh, it's actually for SLA, but it's very precise. If you want to do something like a small model, of a building or something, you get really beautiful results on that, like fine precision results. Yeah. I know just from looking into various resin printers of, you know, LCDs, DLPs, SLAs, you start to get to these numbers that sound, these resolutions that are better and they are better like for SLA, but then you have to kind of step back and go, wait, I, as a human, can't really even see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> like the difference between some of the more expensive SLA printers and some of the cheaper LCD printers that I've personally been looking at, it's like 10 or 20 microns. Yep. And I'm like, okay, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't need it to be 10 microns better. Agreed. 50 microns is the, is the diameter of a hair, of a human hair. <laughs> so, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about less than that. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Oh, and then a couple catches to these printers uh, just so people can, you know, understand that there's definitely good with the bad is like we said, it's more expensive and there's also extra steps to the final product. Alexa touched on this. She said that deposition, you know, it's, there's a lot less extra steps. There's not as much to, to deal with, but so afterwards it requires like an isopropyl alcohol bath specifically because the isopropyl alcohol has to clean off the leftover resin from the bath that, you know, you, you shine the light in to create the print. And uh, it's really just because this resin isn't soluble in water, but it is soluble in isopropyl alcohol. So that's one thing that a lot of people, you know, groan about whenever they buy this. Uh, and lastly, you have to cure your print in UV light. And I mean, you can do this effectively in the sun or use another device, but obviously, you know, the bigger the print, the more exposure that you need and the longer time that's going to take. So there's a couple drawbacks, especially with these printers, but they are, I mean, if you want more precise, by all means, you know, we're not telling you what to buy. And it, but I guess to end on a good note, the difference between a deposition and in the resin printers is that the bonds between the layers of the resin from printing form chemically compared to a rigid grain structure from the deposition printers. Therefore, like the filament prints will fail typically before resin prints. If you want to call it grain boundary, their grain boundaries are finer. So they have greater strength and less a susceptibility to if anybody's a material science nerd, susceptibility to microfractures, which then build up to fatigue failure. But do you do any like research on powder-based printing by any chance from plastics or metals? My thesis was uh, made at Audis metal printer. I designed a variable roller hemming tool uh, for our robots. And I, I wanted to print this uh, roller hemming tool out and yeah, Actually, that was the, the first time I saw a real metal printer, but it's really exciting. Oh, and, and, and I also have a fun fact. Audi Hungary made the first engine, uh, 3D printed engine block that was also, how can I say, it worked. <laughs> first functional so, engine. <laughs> it was functional. Yes, yes, thank you. I was uh, looking for that word. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I need to research that. I think that'd be really cool just to hear the the specs behind it, like how much coolant is needed and what's the difference between like what are, what are the functionality differences between like a, a forged metal and then the printed metal, the metal engine. I'm curious. It's really interesting. I know that the way that this works is quite similar to resin. Uh, I mean, it's another thing that we're talking about, like on a commercial scale, it's more viable for someone commercially to purchase this for a company compared to, you know, regular Joe on the, on the side of the street, he's going to have a deposition printer before he's going to have resin or powder based for sure. I know, I know, I remember at Slippery Rock, we were looking at a metal, a powder based printer and the ones that I was looking at that were in ballpark were probably 20 grand that we were interested in, but that's also an education system. That's, that's a, an established university. Yeah, they can swing it. <laughs> <laughs> they can, the, the budget can swing that uh, for good research purposes, actually. I mean, this is, I mean, this is additive manufacturing. This is what mechanical material science, you know, even structural engineering, aerospace, you know, the large focus is on this stuff. So powder, resin, and, and deposition are all in the markets today. 
So it's super important to have these things in engineering and in material science laboratories for sure. But I guess we can move on here. Uh, let's talk about scales of printing. One thing I really wanted to share before maybe I ask you about normal size printing is nano. So like whenever I was in a nano fabrication laboratory at Pitt, I'm not really allowed to say what, what I did there. I did some OECT research through Slippery Rock, but they had nano scale printers. Uh, just for the audience, 100 nanometers in dimension, that's about a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. We just talked about a human hair being about 50, 50 microns. It's a thousand times smaller than that. <laughs> so it's really small. And one cool case of this, there's a couple cool cases, is catheters. You can print catheters. Another really cool one is tissue regeneration scaffolds. I, got, I didn't get to read too much into this because I was running out of time, but the ability to 3D print tissue is uh, a nano application of 3D printing. There's a lot of applications that we'll be talking about throughout the rest of this episode, but that just fascinates me that you can do that on such a small scale. Hey, Sam? Yeah. Just a quick question because I'm not familiar with it. When we're talking about nano 3d printing is it mm -hmm. like a desktop size machine with a super tiny nozzle when we're talking plastic are we talking like a laser resin based or what it's typically laser because okay. <laughs> to get a nozzle that small is just crazy you know like <laughs> yeah <laughs> it'd be crazy i mean i, I kind of figured it was resin but i had to ask <laughs> oh of course no I, i've never seen one the one that i saw was was laser and it was resin based I don't know what they were doing with it. They actually couldn't tell me, which was kind of crazy. It makes you wonder, you know, well, what can't you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's a lot of really great nano applications for 3D printing that are out there, specifically in the health fields, which is really, really great. So there's also, I guess, quote unquote, so we talk about nano, the quote unquote normal applications. Alexa, what comes to mind when you think of normal sized applications in 3D printing? Oh, great question. For example, hobby projects. <laughs> 3D printing is uh, accessible for everybody now, uh, fortunately. And uh, yeah, you buy your 3D printer and uh, you have a problem at home. For example, you are missing some parts for your car or your bicycle and you make your model. You can use Fusion uh, because it's free or Tinkercad. <laughs> So you don't even have to buy Katia or, or Creo or something else. And then you slice it up and you print it out and you have your missing part. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I think you might have misunderstood my question. I was just asking, like, what are some everyday applications like on a normal size? So we were just talking about nanoscale. So like if you think about something in the order of uh, of centimeters in the order of, you know, like between centimeters and maybe a meter. Like, what type of applications are out there for 3D printing? Something like the size of a prosthetic, maybe? <laughs> yeah, for example, prosthetics. Uh, I have a startup called Low-Cost Robotics, and we are developing 3D printed prosthetics for children between the ages of 6 and 16. So, yeah, and um, at the automotive industry, we are using 3D printing for uh, repeat prototyping. If I'm if I'm missing something, please. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. I was just asking uh, what what came off the top of your head. Oh, okay. Noah, is there anything that, that you can think of in terms of normal sized applications? I think the example of just fixing things is really great. I've uh, I've always been a big advocate of fixing stuff and I hate spending money, so I never want to buy something new. I couldn't even start to list the things that I'm just like, oh, this broke. Oh, it's a little part. I understand how it works. I'll just 3D print a new one. Yep. And that's not always a new part. I got some speakers in my basement and I was mounting them on the wall. And I thought, well, you know, it'd be cool if these were like kind of tilted towards the couch instead of like away from the couch. So I printed what is effectively just a little tiny standoff with a slight angle. I think it was like a 15 degree angle. And now the speakers are just slightly pointed inward. It convinces me that it sounds better, even if it sounds identical. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's little stuff like that where it's like, I mean, something that simple you could probably make easily out of wood. But you start getting a little more complicated than that. And suddenly it's like, how much is it going to cost? Do I go to like a fabrication shop? Do I go online and try to find some custom product? Mm, custom's always more expensive. Exactly. And so now with hobbyist printing and a little knowledge of some... 3D modeling, you make it yourself, you learn something in the process, and then you have a cool new product. Yeah, I totally agree. And and even just like if you wanted to do an architectural model, uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, I've seen like Lego enthusiasts, if they're trying to build something and they have like a specialty part missing that they would like to have, you could just 3D print a Lego that would fit. Sure. I imagine Lego, the company, doesn't love that, but it's totally doable. <laughs> Hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do, especially if Lego's not making it. Yeah, there you go. Just being creative. If you have a niche product that you can't find at the store, you can make it. You have the opportunity to do so. And one thing I really want to promote here is that if you are 3D printing, and I'm sure everybody that's on here that knows or that 3D prints already knows this is Thingiverse or just online forums that people post and share STLs, which are those models that we were talking about and you can go on and, and get these for free. Like if you need something that you would imagine that would be pretty normal, like in terms of everyday life, I'm sure it's out there. So just, just Google it first before you um, go out there and spend two hours trying to model something that you don't need to. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad. I, for some reason, you know, I'm so locked in like useful products uh, literally across for the room from me, I have a bookshelf full of more artistic 3D prints. It's just yep. like decorations, uh, a Groot head, uh, an Egyptian sphinx, some Pikachus. Yeah, I mean, obviously you can also just make decorative products. I've seen a lot of really cool stuff on Thingiverse online. I have a few different ones that are in my study. Like I have a, since I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh, I have a Pit Panthers statue, which is pretty cool. The last one here that I want to mention is macro scale. So we have like, we talked about nano, normal size, and then macro scale is kind of like buildings. And, and actually a, a really cool example is a boat. And the University of Maine created the world's largest 3D printed boat in 2019. And it's about 7.6 meters or 25 feet and weighs about 2.2 tons, 2.2 metric tons. And it took advantage of a deposition printer which was really interesting to me it's really cool that the, the scale can go all the way from a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a, of a hair to a 25 foot boat <laughs> scaling is a beautiful thing yes yes absolutely 
let's end on the high note and head to commercial break. But when we return, Alexa, Noah, and I will be discussing metal and plastic applications. So stick around. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Welcome back. This is segment two of 3D Printing is the Future. This part of the episode will be centered upon the applications of our first two and most prominent materials in 3D printing, which is metals and plastics. Okay, so let's start off with plastics because most people are familiar with plastics that are tuning in. And because, you know, typical printers that anyone can purchase are going to be plastic printers because, well, they're they're cheaper and there's no such thing as a, a carbon or water tax right now, which could throw a monkey wrench into the private sector of 3D printing fanatics if that were to ever take place. But I digress. Plastics have many applications in 3D printing and in life for long-term uses. But before we get to applications, we should start off by talking through some of the most common polymers. Noah, maybe we could start off by talking about PLA or polylactic acid. Do you have any noteworthy comments? Yeah, PLAs what I would still consider to be the most common. It's really easy to print. It prints pretty well at a wide variety of settings. So if you don't feel like tinkering and dialing it in quite as much, you should still be able to get a good print easily. Alexa, do you mostly run with PLA or how often do you use PLA? <laughs> at the moment, I only use PLA. <laughs> okay, okay. But uh, a lot of people are using PLA because uh, it is really easy to work with. And yeah, uh, PLA is uh, partially biodegradable thermoplastic and uh, it is also called a biopolymer. And I think people have the feeling that when they are using PLA, they are doing something great for the environment. So yeah, <laughs> that's why uh, it's so, how do you say? Uh, popular? Popular, oh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, as I mentioned, people think that uh, it, when they are using PLA, they are doing something great and they are uh, greener and uh, well, actually, yes, but no. <laughs> yeah, I actually have some pretty solid evidence on that if you want me to add on. So polylactic acid is what PLA is. And it's like you said, it's it's a naturally occurring acid that's produced by sugars. And they sell PLA as being an eco-friendly and sustainable approach to plastics. And let's clear this up here. It's probably not, but it could be. 
I have uh, a study here from Yale and Sichuan University. And PLA, they say that PLA requires moisture and heat over 140 degrees to begin its self hydrolyzation process, reducing the molecular weight of the polymer to lactic acid. So it's pretty much that, like you said, the biodegradability. And polylactic acid does not and will not biodegrade without these environments, the moisture in 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So typically, if you're trying to home compost it, if it doesn't have 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and if it lacks water, PLA will do nothing and it will sit in the earth and just do what all the other fossil fuel plastics do. Just keeps on breaking down into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. So yes, it degrades, but it degrades with parameters. I hope that maybe cleared up some things for some people. I would say the best thing to do is I know you want to print, do it. By all means, do it. It's awesome. It's creative. It's a great thing to do. It's it's a great activity for for friends and for family, for even, you know, like teaching children and everything. It's it's awesome. But what I usually do is I try to reduce my waste through software. You know, how I build the models using less support and what I can research about material science will improve my print success rate. So, you know, one, it doesn't cost me money. And two, it doesn't harm, I guess, the ecosystem. So also please recycle it. PLA can be recycled. I would say, though, to look up your local recycling plant to make sure first, just before you throw it in the bin. But I would also say, like you two, is I probably use PLA the most. And then PETG would probably be second. With that being said, PETG is called polyethylene terephthalate glycol. I don't know if you would want to elaborate on what you typically do with PETG. Yeah. A while back, I was uh, 3D printing shift knobs for a car my car and i had this idea that maybe i would start selling them to people right and so i thought well what's it gonna experience in a car if someone in arizona buys one of these plastic shift knobs from me is it gonna melt in their car and i i don't remember the numbers i'm sorry but pla was like nope mm -hmm. that's gonna be not a puddle but it's gonna deform and there's a nut embedded in it it's probably gonna pop out and then you're not gonna have a shift knob and I remember Pet G, it was like any day it would be fine except for like the world record hottest degree. Then it could melt. And I thought, well, that's pretty darn good. Yeah. Because you're talking 120 plus degrees inside a car in the sun all day. And so for me, that was the main reason I started moving towards it is just it melts at a higher temperature than PLA. It's also stronger. I believe it's a little more flexible not like a flexible filament, but just like if you hit it, it has a little bit of give to it that it won't necessarily crack as easily as PLA would. Yes. And honestly, I kind of just kept printing and printing and printing until I had a really good PEG profile, PETG profile. And now it's like, well, I have a slightly bigger nozzle on my printer that I use for PETG. I don't feel like changing the nozzle to use the PLA. So that's kind of the main reason I always use it. It's been really reliable for me once I did dial those settings in. Yeah. Like you said, I was using it for outdoor applications as well. I was printing boat parts and uh, different vehicle accessories with PETG. Honestly, if you're trying to print PETG, if you're listening, I recommend you invest in a cover uh, for your printer if you're trying to print in PETG in, in general. The real reason is PETG requires a slower cooling process because it has a higher mending temperature. 
as Noah was saying, compared to PLA. Reason is, if ambient temperature is too low, it'll cause warping, microcracking, and even worse, layer splitting, which nobody loves to see on a longer print. It, it happens so much, honestly, with taller prints. I would, I'd leave for eight hours, come back, and it would just be a massive crack on the side. I'd be like, that sucks. Really? Yeah. I've never had PETG delaminate. I had ABS delaminate really badly when I tried to print it. But I do get really bad warping on the bed. When I moved into my house, the basement's a lot colder than the rest of the house. And I didn't used to print covered, but I have started printing covered now just to entrap some heat around it. Yeah, I mean, it's really good to do it that way. Honestly, I didn't buy a cover. What I did was I made a makeshift like box cover and it worked beautifully. Uh, it had like a little flip cover and then also a feed hole so I can push the filament through it. And it worked perfectly. It just kept ambient temperature at a place where it doesn't do that warping, microcracking, or even, you know, at worst case, the, the splitting. But on a material science aspect, I do kind of want to explain this. It's kind of like, if you know anything about metallurgy, it's like metallurgy in this case. So if the cooling process is too rapid, there isn't enough time for that layer boundary to fuse together ultimately making the part weaker. Now, if you have appropriate ambient temperature, you're good. It'll cool slower and allowing a good layer bondage and a stronger product. Plus it's even cooling. Ambient temperature is so variable because of the sheer volume of air that's involved. But if you have a printing hood, it's more controlled. You'll be better off with a hood of some sort, you know, covering your prints. Oh, and, and one other thing, you can also use a blanket. I've even used a blanket at sometimes. And I mean, if you really want to get thermalized, especially like in a uh, a lot hotter print, like maybe polycarbonate, that would be a good way to go. Yeah. If you don't want to spend $100 on a cover, just use a box. <laughs> it works very well. <laughs> oh, and one other thing is people understand PET. PET is polyethylene terephthalate. We're printing polyethylene terephthalate glycol. And one thing that I did a little bit of digging up on is that glycol is the bonding agent because... It's typically recycled polyethylene terephthalate, and the glycol is the bonding agent to kind of bring it back together. So you are printing recycled plastic if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> but um, do either of you have any comments on maybe uh, ABS? Yes, but my boyfriend uses only PETG. <laughs> what does he use PETG for? For everything, because uh, he was like, printing with PLA is too easy to start. So he started with PETG. Does he use any uh, cover or anything like that? No, no. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. I think it's just you, Sam. Maybe it is me, man. <laughs> I got it down to a science, though. It's working out quite well. With 3D printing, there's so many variables. If you get something that works for you with your printer, just keep doing it. Agreed. I definitely agree. There's a lot of things that that are involved, even like the print speed, the layer thickness, like I said, all three types of temperatures. There's so many settings involved that, I mean, even just the infill, like infill percentage that you use in your in your software, it all takes a toll in one way, shape, or form. But Noah, do you have any experience with TPU, which is thermoplastic polyurethane? Yeah. So that's like flexible filaments where we're talking about actually flexible as far as you can squish them and stuff like that. Uh, depending on what variety you buy, they're more or less squishable i guess scientific term there uh no they have different durometers different hardnesses 
in my experience they're kind of hard to print yeah because it's such a soft material if you have something like a bowden style extruder that's not usually as good because you're trying to push something that is flexible from behind it's like pushing a wet piece of spaghetti it just wants to fold inside the tube it doesn't want to go through the extruder um but you know like anything some people have great success with a bowden extruder and tpu it's cool stuff the first time i printed with it it looked horrible the settings were not dialed in but it was so much softer than i expected because i kind of thought it would be like stiff you know like a like a really dense rubber and it was it was squishy it was it was pretty cool yeah one thing that i really want to stress here about tpu is that well tpu and all other plastics are what is referred to as hydroscopic meaning that it pulls moisture from the atmosphere and you know over time clogs the pores of the material makes it really brittle and unprintable so if this is happening to you my advice especially for tpu and these flexible materials is is keep it in a sealed container and extrude the filament from the container because then you don't have as much exposure to the atmosphere and you can keep it from doing its hydroscopic stuff and if, if it does happen to you you can always bake the water out of the filament via like a diy rack with heat or a conventional oven i definitely recommend that you research that before you try it don't just throw it in the oven and see what happens another thing is it's really cool you can actually understand how much moisture is in your filament in any filament any plastic if you hear snaps when it's coming out of the nozzle i'm not bsing here am i like it's heating that that moisture and it's causing a pop yeah if you hear this popping the crackling that's the moisture boiling off yes the first time I ever bought TPU, I, I bought it. It was a slippery rock and I bought it and I put it in the cupboard. I forgot about it for like a month and uh, I dumbingly opened it and uh, forgot about it and then came back. It was snapping. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how quickly it really will take on water. Yeah, TPU is pretty hydroscopic. I mean, there's obviously different changes of uh, hydroscopic properties between the plastics. So make sure that you definitely have some sort of a chart and understanding between them. But uh, the last one is is polyvinyl alcohol. Alexa, have you ever heard of, of PVA? Have you ever dealt with it? or? I've heard about it, but I haven't uh, dealt with it. So Yeah, it's pretty tough because I know you own a, a Prusa, right? Yes, an E3 MK3, yes. <laughs> That's what I have too. I have an MK3 as well. Do you have like the, the multi-extruder or do you just have like the single extruder? I only have uh, the single extruder version. But it's enough for me, so... Oh, yeah. No, definitely. The multi-extruder, it's great. Um, I recommend if you're trying to do PVA, like two different types of materials, that you need to get a printer that has two different extruders. You can use a multi-tip nozzle, or you can use a printer that has two nozzles or what have you. But that's pretty important, especially if you're using PVA, because, because it's water-soluble. And if you print it, you print it as the support material... And obviously the other material would then be your actual part. And then at the end, what you can do is you put it into a water bath and then over time it will become water soluble. And then all you have to do is you can clip it or you can let it soak and dissolve either or it just depends on how much time you have. But yeah, Noah, you said that you had a little bit of experience, right? Yeah. At Slippery Rock, same as you, we had some. I just tinkered with the settings a little bit. I just found some suggested settings online and it printed. And I, like you said, I used it as support. And then we threw the print in a bucket of water and it dissolved. It took a bit of time. I think we just left it overnight. 
And the next day I kind of was like, okay, now my print is wet. And I wasn't really a big fan, but um, I think it has its purposes. I have done prints since then where I felt like it would have been a lot more helpful, where it's just been really hard to get to the inside where the support material was. And I mean, the print dries out. It wasn't a big deal in the long run. Yeah, just took a little bit more time. Yeah. Now, uh, this is very interesting because I was reading up on PVA a little bit the other night. And uh, so PVA is actually eco-safe as long as it goes into a water treatment facility. So don't go outside and just dump it in the lawn. So these water treatment facilities actually have microbes that can process this material. Actually, PVA is used heavily in the medical industry, and it's being tested as like, this is what's very interesting. So it's water soluble, but they're testing it to be used as contact lenses, artificial heart linings, cartilages, catheters, skin, and pancreas membranes. So I wonder how the science checks out with that. I would be curious to maybe talk to a chemist and see what what's going on there. But from what I understand, that it's even in the prescription drug industry, food packaging and supplements. And also PVA is used as the pods, like the laundry detergent pods, uh, like, like Tide pods. If it's proven as a safe alternative and can coexist with living organisms, why not? I think that's awesome. I don't know. Is there any other types of plastics that you wanted to talk about? Maybe shout out some information on? Maybe ABS? Yes, if you would like to talk about ABS, sure. I think uh, ABS is also just as popular as PETG. Uh, I don't like ABS because it's really hard to print, but when you, you print something out, you can do whatever you want with ABS because you can polish sand or drill or paint your model way more easier uh, than, for example, PLA. And uh, actually, ABS is also really, really strong. And it's also flexible, like PETG. Yeah, and I'm not sure about it, but it's maybe chemical resistant, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't specifically use ABS. I've used, I mean, I've used it in the past experimentally and I've written down constraints for temperature, but I typically tend to use PETG a little bit more because it's the same thing, but it doesn't warp uh, as much. Like PETG doesn't warp as much compared to ABS. It's a little more finicky. It's still a good product. Like if you like it and you have your settings and it works, by all means. Actually, I don't like it, but in the past, <laughs> in the past, I was I was working a lot with ABS because the first prototypes of my robotic hands were made of ABS. So actually, I have a bit emotional connection with it, but I have ambivalent feelings with ABS. Were you also experiencing the warping capabilities of it? Yes. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I only printed an ABS for one model. It was split up into like eight prints. And I agree, I do not like it. Even in an enclosed printer, it was just delaminating. The layers were cracking apart from each other constantly. I'm sorry, that, that's where the bias comes out of me. I, I'll always say if you want something quite similar capability-wise, something that's durable in the outdoors, something that has the same you know, fatigue abilities, the same toughness, the same ductility, I would recommend Veggie. Yeah, around the time I got into 3D printing, the whole community was kind of like, uh, ABS is the old stuff. Just don't use it. So it's definitely a bias. I never got into it. Like you said, some people probably use it and it's probably good for them. But 
The only reason I ever even tried it is because a free roll came with one of the printers we bought. <laughs> They're pushing it. <laughs> yeah, they had to get it out of stock. <laughs> well, anyways, let's move over to metals. And we could probably make this one a little bit shorter since we don't have as much to talk about. I do have some things to talk about in terms of applications, but in terms of metal types that are typically printed, you'll usually see stainless steel, some tool steels, uh, titanium and nickel alloys. I know if you're paying like $30 a kilo for titanium, you know, in typical practices, what you would do is you would buy a block of titanium and you would mill it down to a certain degree, to a certain product size. And you would lose like, you know, 90% of your, of your material. And that's a huge cost. And not only that, just the time involved. Now, if you want to 3D print it and the strength requirements, everything, all the material application meets what you want, then why not 3D print it? You can tailor it to whatever you need it to. Honestly, it's, it's a time saver. It's a material saver. And if you're just doing a niche product, it's perfectly fine. Now some printing applications like i was saying usually you're doing low volume special parts because one thing is that that governs 3d printing at the moment is economies of scale and if you know anything about the economies of scale if you're trying to scale up 3d printing it's typically better to go towards machining rather than 3d printing and that's because of the material properties at the moment with where we're at in 3D printing and then also the upfront cost of 3D printing. So it's interesting, but I think it's something that has a lot of promise for the future. So would you like to maybe expand a little bit more, Alexa, on some of your applications that are at Audi for, for metal-based printing? Yes, actually, uh, as I mentioned before, my uh, thesis was printed like this. It was made of uh, aluminum powder because that's what we are using at Audi. And actually, uh, car manufacturers use uh, 3D printed elements now because it gives the impression that uh, we are uh, modern, that uh, our models are futuristic and it's a good selling point. So yeah, that's what we use metal printing for. Oh, definitely. I know even with obsolete parts are really important. Okay, so I have a pretty good application and it's talking about rocket engines. So Virgin Galactic made a fuel injector for their space missions. And so the fuel injector, what happens is they, they mix liquid oxygen and liquid methane propellants, which produces you know the actual flame, the actual flame of the rocket engine. So typically, if you wanted to 3D print that fuel injector, it would be one part and it would take two weeks of printing and 10% of traditional methods. Whereas if you wanted to build it with a team of individuals, it would take over a thousand parts and would be about nine months, which is 10 times more expensive in materials. So you can tell already by the difference, you know, in the capabilities of 3D printing. Originally, this is what's cool. Originally with the thousand part thing, you would have to weld 1,080 coolant tubes to the shape of a combustion chamber and the nozzle so that they could run liquid hydrogen over the metal to literally keep the rocket from melting 
because that's the big thing. You have to cool this thing. If not, it's way over exceeding the, the metal capabilities in terms of, of temperature resistance. And really cool thing about this is they typically use SLS printing for metallic fuel injectors, and they usually run four lasers at once, which is super cool. I, I definitely recommend that you look it up. So a rocket is typically in four different parts. There's the payload, the guidance system, or the guidance area, the structural, and then the propulsion area. And actually, Virgin Galactic is completely 3D printing using deposition or extrusion printing, or FDM. And they also are using the laser metal deposition. I guess more importantly, the laser metal deposition in terms of deposition printing. And it's essentially like filament extrusion, except it takes much higher temperatures to get, say, aluminum to mend and form layer by layer and, you know, getting an entire piece of a rocket shell. I mean, so 3D printing helps the aerospace industry by cutting down on the number of parts, cutting the time needed to manufacture and is cost effective. Uh, another really cool thing is the speed of the prototyping. So you can build three fuel injectors in six weeks to test them, whereas you would only get one every nine months if you were trying to you know, build it with that thousand different parts. This allows rapid improvement in the industry, which is another perk to metal 3D printing. Yeah, that's an amazing improvement. It really is. I took a deep dive just kind of watching interviews of like the engineers and the owners of some of these aerospace companies. And it just blew me away how much they utilize metal 3D printing, especially for prototyping and testing. And then they actually have these rocket capsules that are going to space, which is awesome. And they're massive. And they look 3D printed. Like some places you machine them to keep to keep a smooth edge, but like the four part system that I was telling you about for a rocket, it looks 3D printed. You walk up to it, you see the grain boundaries. It's so cool. That is really cool. I'd think it would almost feel a little more scary knowing it's like that, but if it's been tested, then it's fine. And you can just see that it's been 3D printed. That's really cool. Yeah, I have full confidence in the engineers that are doing this. <laughs> it's interesting because you would think that because we're using our plastics knowledge is that like you know the grain boundaries are what usually fails first or temperature you know but like to know that like a metal printed rocket can work is phenomenal but yeah alexa do you have anything else to add to metal 3d printing not really i just think what you said is is really amazing and in fact 3d printing is is the future yeah i'm really curious what the future holds and I just hope this uh, technology gets cheaper. So, for example, I can buy my uh, own metal printer at home. So that would be really, really, really great. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. I would be, I'd be running that baby all the time. There's surgical instrument prototypes that are out there. There's surgical dental implants out there. There's knee and hip replacements. And then also there's jewelry and decorative arts that are made in metal printing. Just for a couple other applications, if you're interested, please be sure to Google those because they are beautiful and very interesting. But we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to round out the shindig and talk about construction and culinary applications. So stay tuned. Hey, my fellow listener. If you love what you are hearing, my team and I would greatly appreciate it if you threw us some spare change. You know, 
just so we can continue to make this show better and better for you. To do this, head to our website, everythingsteve.org, and click on the donate button in the top right corner, or go to our support us page. Whichever you choose works for us. If that's too much work, we totally get it. You can slide me some dough via Venmo, and my tag is at ProZoomStudent. Or, conveniently, if you don't have Venmo, throw us some cash on the Cash App. Our tag for Cash App is at EverythingSteam. And at last resort, there's always a subscription option on our official Anchor.fm page. You can subscribe to us monthly for just merely 99 cents. Listen, any little bit helps. And just so you know, we are honored to serve you as your source for Steam information. So thank you for your continued support, and as always, stay curious. Hey there, welcome back to the last segment of 3D Printing is the Future. This portion of the episode will be centered on the applications in construction and culinary arts. Construction is the first thing that I would like to talk about because it has two different really interesting applications that I think you would be really, you know, a lot of people here would be really fond of. Printing materials such as concrete, regolith, non-biodomesticated dirt and then earth are the most prevalent when it comes to printing structures in, in construction. Whenever I say regolith, I'm usually talking about something in space. Now, earth, obviously, we're talking about dirt on earth. Now, on earth, we're focusing on printing buildings in terms of low-cost housing units. And since I'm a structural engineer in training, I can go on to talk about why we're only looking at residential scales. And I could also talk about seismic capabilities and uh, material aspects to that. But I want to keep it relatively short and talk more about why low-cost housing units are important. But first of all, maybe I'll ask either of you two, why do you think that's an important issue? So right away, I think of something like a natural disaster where suddenly everything's knocked down and you need to get some kind of shelter there quickly. Uh, I'm sure there are other applications, but that's just always what I think of. Yeah, absolutely. Alexa, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, locust housing would be great for solving homelessness. Oh, most definitely. One other thing that comes to my mind, and it's specifically uh, important for today, is the relief efforts of war victims. And we all know what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. And maybe even just more not in headlines is like even the war in Yemen at the moment, where literally just cities and, and homesteads are being destroyed. So having the ability to rebuild people's homes effectively would be just paramount, you know, to keeping people happy in life, you know. And relatively, these buildings come up really fast. And another one that comes to my mind is what's going to come in the future in terms of, of sea level rise initiatives. So people impacted by climate change, there's an estimated of 1 billion people on Earth. You might not think that, you know, 1 billion compared to 8 is a lot, but it is astronomical in terms of cost, astronomical in terms of materials, astronomical in terms of effort and energy. So to do something on a large scale at a fast pace in a cost-effective alternative is absolutely paramount. So if we can create you know, some sort of readily available low-cost housing unit printing objective, then I think it would be a great way to combat the effects of climate change because it's inevitable. 
And <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know another way in which we can safely relocate a billion people. But yeah, another one is space. I came across a really cool tidbit of information where so NASA typically puts out like these not activities, but these competitions where they have specific subjects that in align with the future plans of NASA. And one of them came up as being how in the heck are we going to house people on the moon and on Mars? And a company that that I'm really fond of is Icon. Icon also has their hands in Earth based printing. They print residential homes and whatnot and low cost housing units. But they also put their hand in the pie in terms of trying to create a structure that would be good for Mars using Mars regolith. And Mars regolith, if, if you don't know, is, is rich in iron oxides. It's a lot different than Earth. It's a lot different than what you pull out of the dirt here. There's no microbiome. It's different. And they put together a uh, machine to be able to 3D print the uh, regolith homes, which is really cool. And what you could do is you can use artificial intelligence to do so and or just robotics to do that for you on a planet that's 15 light minutes away. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's really cool and really interesting. I actually want to try <laughs> this kind of housing because it's not like the regular building form of a, of a house. So yeah, and, and I actually want to live on Mars because there weren't many people as here in the Earth. So I just want to try this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, imagine where you can actually get on the Falcon 9 and fly to. Fly to your 3D printed house on Mars. Ooh, that would be really great. <laughs> fly to Mars. <laughs> that, you know, it seems super sci-fi, but like, it's a possibility. Now that's my life goal. <laughs> uh, you just need the technology to be able to 3D print the structures and then have supplies on Mars that can get you through. I think that'd be really awesome. It's amazing what you can do. We talked about scale earlier, and I don't know if this is exactly what they still look like, but I picture the houses as those first concrete FDM printers where you can see the layer lines because each layer is like four or five inches thick. And so the house looks kind of weird and ribbed, but that's fine. It functions. To me, that's so cool that you can literally take a normal FDM printer, like the one sitting behind me, and just make it way bigger. You get rid of the heating because you're not melting a plastic and you just put concrete through it or cement. I don't know what the appropriate term is, but that's just the same thing. It's just larger and it still works fine. And then once you're on Mars, you just figure out whatever percentage of irons in their rocks and you make you change the settings to work with different alloyed metals and bada bing bada boom printing metal on mars and one thing that came to my mind here is if we're trying to do a global relief effort you know for relocation or for even like you said like homelessness in different countries war victim relief efforts natural disaster relief you know between hurricanes or earthquakes whatever it may be if you can tailor it from Earth here, like dirt here, and then related to regolith on Mars or the moon, you can do that anywhere. You can take specimens, materials in, in India and create regolith huts. You can do the same thing in Hungary. You can do the same thing in England, the same thing in the United States. 
wherever it may be. If you can, if you can print buildings on Mars, why can you not do it here for people? So the last thing that I wanted to cover here, which is very interesting, but like we talked about off air, I don't think any of us have any experience with culinary 3D printing, but that's the last like major sector of 3D printing that that uh, jumps out. Now, have either of you seen anything online in terms of what goes on with culinary 3D printing? I've read articles about it, and I think it's really great because uh, when you are on that level of cooking, like uh, these master chefs, it's important how your plate looks, how you you make your dishes. So that could be really great. And I know we talked about, and you said you don't want uh, a cookie printer, but I want one. <laughs> <laughs> That would be really great. I just I just print my cookies and yeah. <laughs> but I know uh, culinary 3D printing is not about uh, printing cookies, but I think that would be a really great field of use. Oh my goodness. One thing that, that totally slipped. And you know what? Thank you. You jogged my memory. Uh, instead of just talking about pace and, and things to put on top of a cookie, imagine 3D printing foods. Uh, there's actually research out there. There's actually like companies that are actually trying to 3D print meats. And one thing that's really coming into the market today, especially for people who still want to eat meat and still get the benefits of meat, but are trying to be environmentally friendly because we understand the impacts of, of meat to the environment. There's companies out there that are trying to cater to these people and make a structured meat. I know there's like, you know, Beyond Meat and and impossible foods that that are trying to you know make these burgers these textured alternatives but to 3d print structured meat a steak would be revolutionary and still have the same you know heme content b12 the different nutrients that the iron that you get out of a regular steak in a 3d printed steak would just be absolutely insane and you can see them online and go go Google it. I think there's a few companies that are trying to do this and it'd be huge. Oh, no, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to wrap up, the 3D printing it has been around since the 80s, the late 70s. It's been in conceptualization for a long time. It has a lot of applications in many different sectors, but there's still a long way to go. And there's still progress need to be made in terms of the material science, but also the applications and the mass production, the economics behind it. There's a long way to go. So if you see large prices, um, if you see deficiencies in, in the science, just wait, it's coming. Uh, there's a lot of intelligent people. And there, you know what? If you want to marry mathematics, science in terms of material science, engineering, art, because art has been in every single category that we've talked about so far. And technology, because this is a technology, it's perfect for you. It, it literally hits all the categories in Steam. So my takeaway from all this is that uh, we need more people involved, and it is a beautiful industry. Noah, would you like to give your parting thoughts, and then we can shift it over to Alexa? Um, I wanted to really quickly throw in uh, a culinary comment. So I have this, like probably ridiculous idea concept for food 3d printing and i have no idea how viable it is this is just me thinking but if you could fundamentally break down foods taste as well as nutrition into smaller pieces 
So like nutrition, sure, you have all the different vitamins, minerals, et cetera. But if you could somehow discretize flavor, then I picture that like a food 3D printer that you see in old sci-fi films where they just looks like a microwave, they press a button and food comes out. <laughs> the replicator. Wouldn't be that fast, but it would use some kind of form to it. It would look like a food. And then they just use this much beef flavor and this much cheese flavor. And then it tastes like a cheeseburger. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there screaming, genetically modified. Actually, yeah. I just want to reiterate that genetically modified, we've been genetically modifying livestock since we started having livestock. That's genetic modification. We, we have been breeding them for a long time. So don't make the genetically modified argument here. That's inaccurate. I'm all for you. I think that'd be cool. So you're saying like reduce the size and just create the same tastes and nutrients that you need, or maybe even more. Honestly, like if you want a steak and you want to also enhance the heme content or enhance the B12 content or enhance or even put like a little bit of calcium in there, why not? Right. Uh, whatever best benefits you. I think that'd be awesome. But then keeping the same taste would be pretty cool. So that way you can still. Yeah, the trick, I think really the trick would be the taste, right? Because you have all sorts of supplements already that have whatever you want in them. But right now as far as i know cheese tastes like cheese uh like so i don't know how you would mix base flavors if that's a thing that exists like an art when you mix blue and yellow and you get green i don't know if you can do that with flavor but that's the idea yeah it'd be interesting it's i mean it all comes down to chemistry yeah and uh, i am not a chemist i wish i could speak more on it but i think it'd be cool I don't know if you guys know Heston Blumenthal, but I think he would love this idea. Who's that? He's a chef and he was uh, experimenting always with food. So he also had a series. I don't remember the name of it, but yeah, he was experimenting with food to create, for example, the most uh, crispiest chips or things like that. So I think he, he would love this idea. Oh, I just Googled him. Uh, Heston Blumenthal. Yeah. Okay. I think <laughs> it's beautiful, uh, the future, especially with a low impact and also a greater impact to human health. Why not take uh, advantage of technology? It's only going to benefit you, right? Yeah. You should send him a message, Sam, see if you can get him on here. I would. I, hey, man, I'm, I'm always reaching out to people, see if they'd be interested. But yeah, so Noah, do you have any parting thoughts before we, we jump out of here? Then I'll ask Alexa to do the same. Oh, man, yeah. We talked about a lot, you know, from my, my experience is mostly hobbyist, a lot of hours 3D printing. Hopefully we inspired someone to try 3D printing, I guess, or at least taught someone something. I think the only thing we kind of glazed over quickly was troubleshooting. Ooh. If there's anything I learned running the 3D printing lab, it was just how quickly someone can break a printer if they don't know what settings to use. And it wasn't their fault. You know, they, they just thought the previous settings were fine. They hit save, they hit go, they leave. I show up a couple hours later to a giant blob of plastic jammed and just dragging itself around. And I'm happy there wasn't a fire. Yep. So that's the thing about 3D printing still. It's your bed gets out of level, you get failed prints. Sometimes it's the exact same situation. It just doesn't work. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's come a long way. There are some really reliable printers, more reliable than others at least. And 3D printing, I think, is the future. It's become so regular that 
I legitimately, I talked about those shift knobs. I have some prototypes sitting right in front of me on my desk that I didn't realize until right now. I'm just used to them being here. <laughs> and it's like right here, an SD card holder that I 3D printed. It holds several SD cards and a little uh, micro SD to USB adapter. It's these little things, you know, earlier I couldn't think of any examples, but there's stuff all around me. And this stuff's simple and looks 3D printed, but like you were saying, there's all sorts of stuff actually being used. 3D printed jewelry, 3D printed shoes. It's become a big selling point, which it's a kind of, it's a buzzword, yeah. But that's where people are going. And also I want to add if you you know, if you have troubleshooting, don't be afraid to reach out in a forum because there's so many people that are willing to help you out. Uh, beginner level and even, you know, up into the to if you want to call yourself a pro, like someone that has been 3D printing for a while, you know, always reach out because the community is welcome to help you because more than likely they've been there as well or they're experiencing the same problem. <laughs> like if you buy a printer from, say, Prusa and you're having trouble with something, you can always talk to them online. Like they always have an online chat and they'll help you. I've used that many times. So if you're ever troubleshooting, there's always information out there to help you. It's not like you're alone. But Alexa, what do you have for your parting thoughts? I have a lot of in my mind, <laughs> but I also <laughs> I also hope that uh, we inspired some people to buy a 3D printer and start uh, 3D printing because uh, it's really, really great that as I said uh, at the beginning of this podcast, that uh, you can create something out of nothing, and it feels like magic. And <laughs> uh, Elon Musk said that engineering is the closest thing to magic on Earth. And uh, yeah, I think that's the same with 3D printing. So if you don't have a 3D printer, buy one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you don't have to buy, but uh, but I uh, recommend you to buy because it's uh, a really great investment if you think about it. And uh, you can buy relatively good uh, 3D printers for $400 or $500. I'm not really sure about it because I only know the Hungarian prices, which is in forint. <laughs> and... Yeah, if I can recommend, it's not an ad, but I am a really big fan of uh, Josef Prusa and his printers. And as you said, uh, Sam, uh, they have a really good help center and Prusa printers are really reliable. And yeah, I have mine for maybe two years now and, and I had no problems with it. So yeah, I'm really happy about it. And uh, Yes, I also think 3D printing is the future because uh, we talked about a lot of interesting things and uh, a lot of interesting outcomes. And I really can't wait for what the future holds. So, yes. I agree. Well, Noah and Alexa, I really appreciate you both being on the show. It was great getting to talk to you and also hearing some of your knowledge and you know just some of your thoughts on the future of 3D printing. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Great talking to you guys. Thank you for having me. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest stars, Alexa and Noah, for sharing their knowledge and vast expertise. We hope that we've encouraged you to look into 3D printing or have opened your eyes to the possibilities of their impacts and applications. 
I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by Cody Brandt, marketed by Courtney Page and Maria Pusateri, and QC'd by Panyapit Erickson. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Be sure to check us out on all social media platforms for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and just some fun Steam content. So once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.